0: And you can open up to uh, John chapter 11. So look, this is a long chapter and we're going to try to cover almost all of it. So bear patiently. Bear patiently. Let's pray. Father God, we're just so thankful we have the opportunity to look at your word together. We ask for you to bless. Um, What a wonderful passage to think about the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. And we just ask you to give us insight and understanding and uh, make, our, make your words our own. Put them in our hearts so that they'll always be there. We need to know these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, John 11. If you are, um, if you compare John's Gospel to climbing a mountain. <laughs> We've arrived at the summit of the first half of the Gospel. That's the way I'm going to say it. It's been uh, building toward this moment. It's, it's been a wonderful climb so far. But here we're at the summit. We have the most amazing view at the top here of our incredible Savior Jesus Christ. His power, his mercy, the tenderness of his heart towards us. We will see more in John 11 of Jesus' humanity, his emotions, and his friends. Um, he was a real person. He had real feelings, human feelings, and he had relationships and friends with people, human connections. But a lot more is happening here as well. So it would, it would not be wrong to say that so far John's Gospel has been leading up to chapter 11. This is, like I say, the summit. This is kind of where it's, it's been going. And then it's going to go in a deeper direction in a different way after chapter 11. But this is thematically, um, as well as the story, this is sort of the, a, a key moment. So we've talked about the seven signs of John's gospel. John shows seven miracles to show us who Jesus is and tell us about him. He just picked those. The other gospels have way more miracles, but John picked these special signs and built uh, a whole understanding of who Jesus is around these signs. So, so we're on the top of the mountain, and at the top of the mountain is the, the seventh sign. And it's the most glorious one and the most impactful sign that Jesus performed, not only to show his divine nature, but for us to understand our hope in him and the promises that he's made to us. So in terms of the story, John 11 also directly impacts the most important week in the life of Jesus, which we, which we call the Passion Week, which begins with, um, uh, you know, the arrival into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and then ends with his death and then his resurrection. So John 11 leads into that. And, and the seventh and most powerful sign of the seven signs was the cause of Jesus being welcomed into Jerusalem as the Messiah. But you ever wonder why those people were waiting for him? I mean, he'd come to Jerusalem many times, but why on that day? Because of what happened in chapter 11. That's why that's going to happen. So it's really important to understand that as well. So, the seventh sign specifically relates to also the greatest theme in John's gospel. One of the major themes, which is eternal life. So in chapter 11, we learn that Jesus has the power over life and death. And we learn here that the dead can live. That's really important as well. So, John's Gospel is often called the Gospel of eternal life, the Gospel of life. It's also called the Gospel of faith because of the author's strong emphasis on the need to believe in order to be saved. So, there's two things John wants you to believe. One is that Jesus is God. That's how the book starts, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, right? And he also wants you to believe that Jesus is God in human flesh. He he came into flesh, John 1.14, the Word became flesh, and he wants you to believe that he rose from the dead. So Jesus is God who became man, and he rose from the dead. Those are the two major things John wants you to believe. So the Gospel begins and ends with those two sets of facts. Jesus is God, and he rose from the dead. That's in the first two chapters and at the very end of John's Gospel. Super emphasized there. So um, so you could just as accurately call John's gospel the gospel of faith. You could call it the gospel of eternal life. Both of those things would fit. But in order to help us know Jesus and put our faith in him, John started off his gospel right away explaining who Jesus is. And then he has many chapters to tell us who Jesus is and why he came And those words are often tied to these miracles, these signs. So this one's no different. So faith leads to eternal life in John's Gospel. And over and over he connects those together. So faith connects you to Jesus. And Jesus provides those who believe with eternal life. He earned it for you. And it's his to give. And he gives it freely to those who put their faith in him. So why do I need eternal life? Because I'm going to die. I'm not only going to die but because I'm a sinner I deserve to be condemned by God. That's why I need eternal life. To be condemned by God means to be barred from heaven to be forbidden to go there. When my life on earth is done where am I going to go? See that's the big question. That's why it matters. I, I am going to face the God who created the universe and who made me from the foundation of the world had me in mind. So I'm not, I'm not fit to live with him in heaven if my sin is not taken care of. God does not want heaven polluted like the earth is by human beings. So something's got to take care of this sin issue. I can't barge my way into heaven because I'm not strong enough. And I can't smooth talk my way into heaven because God reads my heart and knows everything about me. The only way in is through His Son. Only God can save me and He sent His Son to do just that. So He made the way for me to be reconciled with Him. He sent His Son to purchase my life with blood, His blood. That's the cost. The word redeem means to pay a price and buy something out of freedom, buy something's freedom could be a human being in, a, in this world. That's the way it was used in the ancient world. But we're talking about purchasing somebody from sin and condemnation into life with God. That's what we're talking about. Payment of a price. So let's remember a couple of key passages related to Jesus, and then we'll jump into John 11 here. So first we had the prologue, right? John 1, I mentioned that, describing Jesus. It, part of that prologue is in verse 11, where it says, He came to His own, And those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John 1.11. Children of God. Well, how does Jesus make a sinner like me into a child of God? How does he give me the right to become the child of God? Well, he takes away my sin. Also chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist points to Jesus, tells his men, look, there's Jesus coming, and he says, behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Takes away the sin of the world. And then you could go to John chapter 3, where we have the most famous Bible verse in the world. Verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And then just a little bit after that in verse 36 of chapter 3 it says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him, remains on him. Jesus says in John chapter 5 verse 24, Truly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So put all that together. Sin taken away by Jesus. We will not perish because we're in Jesus. The wrath of God is replaced with eternal life. Passing out of death into life. All of that comes by putting your faith in Jesus. That's what we call the gospel. It's the good news, right? So, let's look at John 11. It starts simply enough. Jesus has some friends in a village called Bethany. And one of them is very sick. Now a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was sick. So we haven't met them yet in John's Gospel. This is the first time we've been introduced to them, but any believer, when John wrote this, any believer that knew about Luke's Gospel would have known who Mary and Martha were, right? Jesus was welcomed by Martha into their home in Luke's Gospel, and while Martha was busy being a hostess, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening. Remember, remember that? And Martha gets kind of upset with Mary. Lord, tell her to help me out here. I'm trying to be a good hostess and she's my sister and she's supposed to be helping. And what does Jesus say? He says, look, Mary's chosen the better part and it won't be taken away from her. So Mary made the better choice. So this family of siblings end up becoming dear friends of Jesus. And anytime he's in the Jerusalem area, he's going to visit them and be with them, so they know him very well. And Jesus was always welcome in their home. Later in John's Gospel is when Mary's gonna wipe Jesus' feet with her hair, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But, so obviously John was writing in a day when people knew that story about Mary, so he's identifying her and and the family here in in that uh, by writing this. Remember, John wrote quite late Possibly as late as the 90s A.D., 80s or 90s. So we're talking 40 or 50 years after these events happened. So so it's a whole new audience, if you will. So when Lazarus fell gravely ill, the girl's brother, Mary and Martha's brother, it was natural for them to want Jesus to help because it seemed like a very serious illness. So they send a messenger to him. So verse 3, the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold... He whom you love is sick, which just shows the closeness there. They identify their brother as the one that you love. So he was the, that's that word phileo, friendship, strong friendship kind of love. So of course they're going to turn to the healer, right? The person that's healed thousands of people from major illnesses and all kinds of situations and afflictions and... Uh, and we know, we know that Jesus can heal from a distance because we've already seen that in John's Gospel. And The second sign of the seven signs in chapter 4 was the nobleman's um, son, the, the, the uh, government official's son. And he came to Jesus and he wanted to bring him home and Jesus healed him from over 20 miles away. He just pronounced him healed and he was healed. So he, Jesus didn't have to be there to heal Lazarus. He could just do that for him, but he didn't. Jesus also could have gone to him, but if we look at the timeline here, so Lazarus was probably dead by the time the messenger reached Jesus. That seems to be how this works out. It doesn't flat out say that, but if you put the pieces together, that's how it kind of comes out. So look at verse 4. When Jesus heard this, so the messenger gets to him, he said, This sickness is not to end in death. But for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Well, if Lazarus already died, then why would Jesus say this sickness is not, the, the end of the sickness is not unto death? Why would he even say that? Well, that's the whole point of chapter 11. It's not going to end in death, even if he's already dead. That's the amazing thing about this chapter. So you are not to think Jesus is being dismissive when he says that. You know, uh, this sickness is not, is not to end in death. He's not being dismissive at all. Look at verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So they're dear to him. So when he's kind of brushing off the idea of going to see Lazarus or healing him, it's for the glory of God and for people to know about him. It's not any lack of concern for them. They're dear to him. He loves them. But he waits. They send for him, and he waits, verse 6. So when he heard that he was sick, sick, then he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. So Jerusalem is in Judea. Bethany is right next door to Jerusalem. It's like less than two miles away. It's right there. Okay? Now... Are the disciples thinking about Lazarus after these two days? So the messenger came. Two days later, Jesus says, hey, let's go back to Judea. They're not even thinking about Lazarus because he said this won't end in death and they're not worried about him at all, right? So they are worried about Jesus. Going back to Jerusalem is not a good thing for him to do because it's incredibly dangerous. That's what they're thinking about. So he was a marked man. And they want him dead there, so they're very serious about it. So verse 8, the disciples said, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus' answer is pretty interesting. Jesus said, verse 9, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Hey, you know, we were just talking about you not being killed in Jerusalem. What are you talking about, days, and what, what, do you, what does all this mean exactly? Well, he's using a really simple illustration of day and night, right? When it's light and when it's dark. And the first part probably means, when he says there's not 12 hours in a day, it probably just means there's only so, ma- so many hours in a day, right? There's only so many hours in a day to get things done. John Wayne might say, saddle up we're burning daylight something like that okay burning daylight means when the Sun goes down we're done working for the day we can't do anymore we gotta guard the cows or whatever so um, we're wasting time if we're not getting the work done during the day that's what that means so once the Sun goes down productive labor is over Uh, safety is reduced because you can't see what you're crashing into So mainly this means the light of the world is still here. He's the light of the world. He's already pronounced himself that in John's Gospel. He's still here. He doesn't have much time. Okay? So we are now probably a couple of short weeks. It doesn't give us the exact time, but a couple of short weeks before Passover. So it's coming soon. So he doesn't have the time. What's left of the day has to be used for God's purposes. That's why he's going to Jerusalem. They're saying, don't go, they'll kill you. He goes, hey, there's only 12 hours in a day. And that's just a metaphor for the fact that we've gotta get our work done while we can. Okay, so we, that's, why, that's what he's talking about. So that's his point, his death is coming soon, but not yet, it is still day. And the light is still there, so let's go. He also mentions in verse 10 there, having the light in a person. So he's also saying, don't you lose the opportunity to learn from Jesus while he's here. Let him bring God's light into you, into your soul. Take every opportunity to know God through Jesus Christ. Listen, God came here once (laughs) and you should know everything about him when he came here. That's what he's saying. Just as we should know everything we can know about him through the word that was written about him. So many didn't take advantage of that time. Didn't follow the light that they had. They didn't care. It was wasted. But some did care and some did believe. But don't make the mistake of not taking advantage of your opportunities to know Jesus Christ. Don't stumble by not having the light in you. So now Jesus is going to work while it's day. That's what he's talking about. And that includes especially Jesus going to Bethany to do something very special. And that's the seventh sign he's got to do there. What Jesus does there, people in Acton will be talking about (laughs) 2,000 years later. So it's kind of a big deal. So when the disciples questioned the wisdom of getting near Jerusalem, they weren't thinking about Lazarus. So Jesus tells them, verse 11, This he said, and after that he said to them, so he he said the thing about day and night, light, walking while there's light, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. How gently he speaks of Lazarus here, you know. Our friend, our friend Lazarus, he sleeps, of course, sleep is a euphemism. And he explains that. The disciples say, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they, plain, they, they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus, verse 14, said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Okay, He meant sleep the way it's often used in the Bible is for death. Because when a believer dies, it's a rest. When an unbeliever dies, it's not restful. But when a believer dies, it is restful. Sleep suggests rest and peace. But, and, and the Bible says there's no peace for the wicked, right? So there's not going to be any rest for them. Jesus continues in verse 15. He says, I am glad. No, hold it. He just said Lazarus is dead and he said he's glad. How could he be glad? Lazarus is dead. And the sisters are got to be out of their heads with grief. So how could he possibly say that? Well, let's keep reading here. I am glad for your sakes, oh, okay, that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So now we're going to go. He's glad because their faith and the faith of Lazarus' sisters is about to go through the roof when, they, when Jesus does what he's going to do there. So he's glad for them. Something wonderful is coming. Well, the disciples really don't understand what he's talking about, which is pretty typical of them. <laughs> so Thomas, who's a little on the cynical side, you know, but loyal, he speaks up in verse 16. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, he's the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, so that we may die with him. I don't think that's a brave statement. I think that's a, oh boy, this is going to be. <laughs> He's going to be killed. We might as well go and die with him. You know. All right. I'm loyal. I'm going. But we're all going to be dead by the end of this. So they go to Bethany. And it's been several days. Uh, so there was a day for Jesus to get the message. Then Jesus waited two days. And now a day back. So if Lazarus died pretty soon after they sent the messenger, then he's been, it's going to tell us, he's been in the tomb for four days. Okay, so it's been a long time. So Jesus waits those two days, now it's four days. So it seems that Lazarus died then, early. So we don't know how long it was that he was sick before it became life-threatening enough where they sent a message to Jesus. It could have been that for a long time. And you can just kind of picture what the scene was. The, the brother's really sick. The, the girls, Mary and Martha feel that they, what are they feeling, you know, when Lazarus dies like that? And uh, how they must have cared for him, they must have been worried over him, given him every help they thought they could when he was in this state. They may have called in a doctor, we aren't told all the details about it, but Lazarus keeps getting worse. There's no Jesus, he doesn't show up. Uh, There's no word from him. Imagine how they felt, And, and then all of a sudden they're checking on him and his body is completely still. No breath. No movement. He's just a shell. Some of you have been through that experience. You know what it's like to see someone in that condition. They're gone. So they start the whole rituals of preparing the body. In those days, they buried you on the same day. Kind of for obvious reasons. But they still do that in the Middle East. They bury people on the same day. The body had to be cleaned, anointed, wrapped with spices, wrapped up Good, and then placed in the tomb. If you were a wealthier family, you owned a, a tomb that had a, a, a slab inside. You lay the body in that slab, close it up. A year later, you'd come back, take the bones, and put them in a pretty box. That's how they did it back then. So um, just like the tomb of Jesus, you've all seen. There used to be one sitting out here. <laughs> but the big rock they put covering the door. So all of that happened the day he died. That's, that's how you do it. So after that, you start the mourning process officially. Family comes, friends come from from wherever around there to mourn with you for days, like a week. And they go through all these rituals, preparing the body. But now the friends and family start to arrive and mourn with Martha and Mary and comfort them and share memories. And finally the messenger returns. So he returns the day after Lazarus is in the tomb. Now you got to think about Mary and Martha here. The messenger comes back and one of the girls I'm sure said, is Jesus coming? What's he going to report? He's going to report what Jesus said. Jesus said this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And they're just looking at him and he goes, that's what he said. So how would that report have seemed to them, to Martha and Mary? Then another two days goes by and then somebody comes in with the word that Jesus is just outside the village, he's coming now. So verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off. That's important, that's that important historical note for later. Verse 19, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So this is the typical mourning process that's going on. It's long lasting. It lasts for days. Jesus arrives. He's not yet in the village, but he's almost there. And probably he sent one of the guys in to let them know he was on the way, uh, one of his disciples in. So Martha, who's the doer and the active one, she immediately sets off to meet Jesus. She takes off out of the house. Now, we don't know if Mary heard yet that Jesus is coming or not. doesn't say that. Particularly, but she's still in the house. So here's how John tells it in verse 20. When Martha reaches Jesus, she speaks first to him. The way John says it here. So verse 20, Martha therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now, I think this is definitely a statement of faith. She knows and she believes in Christ. He's the Lord, but she's hurting, right? She knows Jesus, and she is confident in his power to heal, but she's also letting him know how grieved they are that he was not there when they really needed him to be there. So I wouldn't call this complaining exactly, but it's an expression of how devastating the last few days have been. I wouldn't call it robust faith yet either. Um, She's struggling. She's struggling with the whole situation. So Jesus, knowing that Lazarus was a believer and had faith, he says words of comfort to her. Verse 23, Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Now, those words could be said by anyone that just is a comfort, right? Well, you know your brother will rise again. And uh, anybody that had the assurance of hope or the assurance of a believer would say that. And that's exactly how she takes it as a general word of comfort. Martha said, verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And those words are what leads into the clearest proclamation yet on the granting of eternal life to everyone who believes in Jesus. So that's the setup phrase right there when she says that. Jesus is going to make a promise to all who believe in him. If you believe, he's making this promise to you. Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Let those words sink into your heart. They're for you. They're for you. You know, I've got to say, my mind this week um, went to Charles Dickens. One of my favorite old films is uh, A Tale of Two Cities. And this verse is so prominent in it. That movie was made like 90 years ago. 1935. And Jesus' words in verse 25 actually drive the narrative of the movie. I don't know if you know the story but you know there's this kind of a wastrel man a very intelligent lawyer but he's drunk and he's wasted his life and He's fallen in love with a girl and she marries a wonderful guy and the French Revolution happens and the guy, the girl he cared about married is in the Bastille and they're going to execute him. So he doesn't have much in his own life. So he decides to try to die in his place. He's going to try to sneak in there, switch places with the guy and he'll die in his place. You know that story? So that's Tale of Two Cities. So in the book, when you read the book that Dickens wrote, he, he spends a whole night meditating on these words of Jesus right here. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. But in the film, Jesus' words are literally the last thing you see on the screen. So he successfully switches places with the guy they go through this whole process, they take him out to where the guillotine is, they're chopping heads off left and right of all the, the aristocrats, as they call them, right? And so he's climbing up the steps to the guillotine and he stands there and he says those famous words from the book, tis a far, a better thing I do than I have ever done. It is a far greater rest I go to than I have ever known. And then in the film, the camera just kind of goes up, up past the guillotine and kind of floats in the clouds. And then these words appear. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. So I was trying to think if they made that today. (laughs) Would they end a movie with the words of Christ, the promise of Christ about the resurrection? I don't think so. I can't quite imagine that. But Jesus' words, those words have comforted millions of people in their last hours, and also given people the strength and the courage to get out there and serve God and the world no matter what happens to them. We talk a lot about what's going on in India right now, and they risk their lives all the time. In China, they risk their lives all the time. Many countries around the world, Christians risk their lives knowing this promise and trusting it. Great personal risk people will take for him because of these words. Believe in Jesus. Give yourself to him. Because these words are true. And you, not your body, but you, the person that is you, your soul, your spirit, will never die. That's what he's saying. If you put your faith in him. And as surely as Jesus rose from the dead... You will rise from the dead. So Jesus tells this great promise to Martha and he asks, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord. I have believed that you were the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So there is her faith right there in words. By the way, this is another private affirmation of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. We talked about that last week. That always came out privately, not publicly. But there it is. So at this point, Martha, her faith lifted and strengthened, leaves Jesus to go fetch Mary, of course, her sister, right? And I'm sure she feels that Mary's heart can be lifted by Jesus as well. So verse 28, when she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, the teacher's here. So there's a bunch of people around, right? So she goes to Mary Mary very quietly and she says, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. In verse 30, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So they're all following her, all this whole crowd of people, all the, all the mourners, and they're all weeping. Verse 32, therefore when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The same words as Martha, right? Mm-hmm. And she doesn't understand why this has happened and why Jesus didn't show up or why he didn't act. So, what is the reaction of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world, to seeing her weeping and her sorrow and all of these people weeping? What's his reaction to that? He weeps too. He weeps. Verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Let me stop right there for a sec. So there's two words, emotional words there. Deeply moved is one Greek word and troubled is another Greek word. That first word, deeply moved, is much talked about among scholars because usually in Greek it has kind of a negative connotation. It's almost like indignation or... or, not anger exactly, but something like that, um, kind of a, an, a negative approach, a feeling towards whatever's going on. But all of the ancient translations of the Bible that translate that word out of Greek into some local language use something that means like deeply moved. So that's why my Bible says that. Your Bible might say something a little bit different than that. But that's it. But it does, the Greek does sort of suggest some kind of anger. So what might Jesus be angry about in the moment when his eyes are filled with tears watching his friends mourn over him? Why would he be in turmoil about that or upset about that in some way? And yet we, right? So look at verse 34 and 35. Jesus said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see and then verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. So if the word translated deeply moved in my Bible, New American Standard, if there's a negative feeling, but he's weeping with them, then what is he would be, what would he be indignant about or have some sort of negative feelings about? Well, if it's to be taken negatively, and maybe not, but if it is to be taken that way, I think the whole scene would arouse in him, not anger, but turmoil and grief and um, a negative feeling while being sympathetic at exactly the same time because he's the son of God and he he knows what all of this represents that he's seeing before him. This whole scene of mourning and grieving, these are deep human emotions that he has but with a divine understanding of what caused all of this where it all came from. So I don't think it's that hard to suggest an explanation for a negative emotional reaction, if that's what he has. He's looking at death and the tragic impact of death on the lives of people. And it never had to happen. Human beings did not have to fall, right? That's, that, that's why. It's, it's the choice of man to abandon God that brings about all of this death. Death is the fruit of sin. The product of a rebellious human nature, human choices. And it's right there before him with his friends. So, sin and death that, that have caused so much misery and pain and loneliness and aching hearts that untold millions of people have been wounded by the loss of a loved one or a dear one. You know, the curse of sin, that would maybe be what he's feeling, along with his great sympathy towards his friends because he's about to lay down his life to pay for all of that. And so it's all there before him, the misery that sin has brought into the world, the grief that sin brings into the world. Jesus hates what sin has done to mankind, but he loves the people that are pained by it, that are hurt by it. His friend is dead, his friend's sisters are grieving, they're devastated. He feels all of that because he's a true human being. So the tender heart of Jesus is feeling all of this, though he knows exactly what he's about to do. He knows that five minutes from now, Lazarus is gonna be walking around. But he still feels all of this. Where have you laid him, he says. And when the people there saw Jesus weeping, they interpreted it, they interpreted it as a grief for, the, for Lazarus, right? That he's weeping because he feels the same thing everybody else is feeling. They don't see it as the prelude to an astounding miracle that's going to give life to a dead man. So verse 36, the Jews were saying, See how he loved him? Because he's weeping. Now there were other comments being made by some people there too, a little more cynical maybe. Some of them said, verse 37, Could not this man who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? And Jesus is about to put all thoughts like that to rest. So... Verse 38, so Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, that same word shows up again, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. And Martha says, well, if we do that, it's really gonna stink. (laughs) Lord, by this time there'll be a stench for he's been dead four days. Now that, John includes that comment, I think, to remind us that Lazarus has been dead for four days. Four days. That means he's really dead, right? Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. So slowly that big heavy stone is rolled away. And you know what? When they roll away the 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 stone from the tomb, I don't know if it stunk or not, but it's dead silent in there. Dead silent in there. Lazarus has been absent from his body for four days. Now, you know, there were two other times in the Gospels that Jesus brought somebody back to life in, in the other Gospels. One was the little girl and one was the, a widow's son and they were actually on the way. He'd just died and they were on the way to bury him and he raises him from the dead too. Probably dead for only hours, both of them, right? That's what makes this a little bit different and pretty astounding. Nobody can say with Lazarus, well, maybe he wasn't really dead. Maybe they just looked like he was dead. He kind of swooned and they were going to bury him. Or, you know, it's not that kind of a thing. He's been dead for four days. Wrapped up and in a tomb. So the finality of the Lazarus situation in the tomb four days is much more vivid and not open to question. There's, there's no thought like maybe he wasn't really dead, right? So once the stone is removed, stench or not, Jesus says a prayer. Right. Verse 41. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it. He wants them all to hear this. So that they may believe that you sent me. Believing that Christ was sent has been a big theme in the last several chapters with all these arguments with Pharisees. And so he uses that language here again. So that they may believe that you sent me. So... And now the people are going to have the most breathtaking, incredible, awesome proof imaginable that Jesus is from God. Right? Verse 43. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Then verse 44. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth and Jesus said to them unbind him and let him go therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him so that's the story this is a public miracle many people see this many witnesses less than two miles from the gates of Jerusalem this happens and people see it. Now are they going to keep quiet about this? No. If you saw that, what would you do? <laughs> Tell everybody you know, right? Tell everybody you know. You know, I don't want to keep dragging movies into this, but the, the, the greatest story ever told, that version of the life of Christ, which is one of my favorite Jesus movies, even though it's kind of slow in parts and kind of went wonky in parts. But the, but the scene of the raising of Lazarus is like one of the greatest moments in cinema. I mean, believe it or not, but they literally take you from there and follow people running and telling people about it all the way up to the gate of Jerusalem, which really captures exactly how that could have happened, because it's so close. You could literally run to the gates of Jerusalem from there and tell people. And so just the way they filmed it, it was brilliant. I mean, truly brilliant. George Stevens, great director. But, um, so this is a very public thing. So the raising of Lazarus, that's why it's going to be a catalyst for when Jesus rides that donkey into Jerusalem, people have palm branches and they're ready to receive him as the Messiah. And they call him the son of David, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna to the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're gonna call all of that out because of this miracle. What happened to Lazarus would be the talk of the town, right, so um, we know that's true. So what can the raising of Lazarus mean for us today? Well, we've already touched on it. Let me just summarize that real quick and then we'll be done. But the raising of Lazarus means that what Jesus told Martha was true and that every believer can know that when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me will live even if he dies, that that is true for you. You can know that. You can absolutely know that. He means it. It's a promise. And there's no limits on his power to grant eternal life because we see it right here now Lazarus was not raised to glory he was raised back to life the kind of life we live so he's going to die again but then he will be in glory right but who can doubt the claim of Jesus that he is the resurrection and the life after doing this miracle life and death are in his power Jesus is the creator God the God that made the universe and human flesh All the gazillions of stars out there, and the infinite nature, of that's little stuff for him. He's bigger than that. And that's how John's Gospel begins, remember? Verse two of John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and then verse two, he made everything. He's the one that made everything. And that's the one who's making this promise. He who believes in me will live Even if he dies. And everyone, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's the promise. So believe it. Believe it. When it's your time to go, go with joy. It might hurt, but go with joy in your heart because you know exactly where you're going. Glory awaits. Jesus will give you eternal life and welcome you into his kingdom If you believe, put your faith in him, follow him. Let's pray. Lord, you alone are the source of life and the great redeemer of souls. You paid the price for our salvation. Unworthy sinners can know that they have life if they believe and follow Jesus. We can know. So we thank you for telling us about Lazarus and the promise that Jesus made not only to Martha, but to everyone who believes. May we delight in you as we live and as we come to you even in death. In Christ's name we pray, amen.